Welcome to Everyday Oral Surgery, Surgeon's Talking Shop. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will be hearing surgeons discussing ways to improve the everyday practice of oral surgery. The ultimate goal of this podcast is to evaluate every aspect that a surgeon could improve in order to create a better experience for patients, staff, and the surgeon himself or herself. The vast majority of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions. The techniques and methods discussed are only meant to provoke thought and should be supplemented with personal research into the clinically reviewed and approved studies prior to making changes to one's way of practice. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Hello, our oral surgery friends. Welcome back to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Today we will be interviewing Dr. Raza Hussein. He is an oral and maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Chicago, Illinois. Can you just give us a 30-second synopsis of your practice? Sure. Uh, you know, thanks, first of all, uh, Grant, for having me. I was fortunate enough to play a role in, in Grant's training, I guess you could say. We were more we were in the trenches together as residents, and then I stayed on the faculty. So then I guess technically I was his attending, but we all know how that is when you're in residency together. But now, uh, you know, 10 years later after f- finishing residency, I'm currently the chief of oral and maxillofacial surgery at the Jesse Brown VA in Chicago, Illinois, like Grant said, and I'm a clinical associate professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago. So mostly uh, academic uh, surgery, but I do do a little bit of kind of what I guess you could qual you know classify or qualify as a faculty practice. So I do still see my own patients and and you know operate without residents at the VA. You know we at least I consider a very worthy cause. We we take care of the men and women that made significant sacrifices for our country, as for our freedoms. So part of the reason I wanted to join the VA was for that reason to take care of a very deserving population. And I'd like to think that uh, we are what you'd classify as a very full scope, if not expanded scope, VA oral and maxillofacial surgical practice. We do everything. We don't really send anything away from, you know, the trauma to the complex implant stuff. Now we keep all the the head and neck cancer in-house as well, since we, um, have a head and neck cancer trained uh, team as well as a surgeon as well. In terms of what I do on, on the private side, it's it's basically what most private oral and maxillofacial surgeons do. Uh, lots of wisdom teeth under sedation and lots of implants, but I, I try to try to keep it full scope there too as well. You know, any trauma that might come in the door will we'll go to the OR and um, then all the other stuff, a lot of stuff. We're fortunate as oral and maxillofacial surgeons, we're able to treat a lot of that stuff right in our office. So really not turning much away. Awesome. First question for you is, what is something you've changed or discovered in the last couple of years that has affected the way that you change oral surgery in a positive way? Yeah, you know, I, I think what we've seen with the advances or the just kind of the the availability of dental implants to a broader portion of the population we all know patients still exp- complain about how expensive implants are but definitely a lot different than 10 years ago i'm seeing more 
more oral than maxillofacial surgeons doing them, but, you know, also more of the rest of dentistry doing them. And, you know, when things don't go the best, we all know that, uh, you know, our, our colleagues come knocking on our doors. And so what I'm seeing is is a lot more implants that are just, you know, they have l- those less than kind of ideal outcomes where uh, maybe a little bit of, you know, it's an implant that's been in function for three or four years and a little bit of coronal bone loss, you know, usually a posterior implant, you know, an anterior implant, you can't really get away with that, you know, that type of scenario because um, it becomes an aesthetic issue. But what I'm seeing is practitioners becoming more open to trying to, or at least listening to those surgeons who are kind of preaching, trying to maintain those implants, nurse them along, treating them more like a tooth that perhaps has had some bone loss and and maintaining it, making it a functional tooth as opposed to condemning it, removing it, starting from scratch, or basically, okay, you got a couple of threads showing it's a complete and total failure. And, and, you know, there, there's still those guys out there that do uh, all of a sudden, you know, they're taking an implant that's welded to the patient's uh, jaw. They're trefining it out only to go back in and start from scratch when a patient probably would have gone to their grave with that implant in their mouth. So with the more that we're doing that we're trying to maintain and come up with with algorithms for treating those scenarios, I actually just uh, submitted a, a chapter to dental clinics on that, how, you know, how to kind of management, an update on the management of peri-implantitis, which I think those of us who have been practicing and placing a lot of implants understand it's a difficult problem, but it is one that now, you know, we're we're starting to come up with little techniques, tricks, and, and methods to try and help out in those situations. Yeah, real quick on that, if you have an implant that's got two or three threads exposed on the buckle, what is your algorithm or what do you do to treat that implant? Yeah, so if you're talking about at the time of placement, that's easy. We've all had that implant where, you know, the you uh, you put the implant 99.5% of the implant is in rock solid bone and you got a couple of exposed threads on the buckle and you, you put a little bit of allergenic or bovine, whatever your kind of flavor of the month is around those exposed threads and, and that usually is a non-issue. I think probably what you're referring to is that implant that's been in function for a couple of years, two, three years, and it's still solid. The patient's not really complaining of any pain, um, but maybe... Um, you can just see a little bit of gray or you can see a little, a couple of those exposed threads. So I used to, in those situations, try to go in and, and open things up and graft and, and debride and regain some of that, that lost bone. And that seemed like a real long run for a short slide because you know, patients, first of all, when I do an implant, I would then classify that as an implant salvage. When I do an implant salvage, I get the restorative components off that implant and try to get primary closure over the top, which in a situation where you just got a couple of exposed threads, I think is is overkill. So now what I've started doing is I, I do, uh, I guess what you, you'd refer to, you know, whether it's a, <laughs> a controversial term or, or not as an implantoplasty, which is basically I go in and I, like I said, if it's not an, of an aesthetics concern, because even with the implant salvage and grafting over the top, and even if they begin, I can get the patient to buy into going without their crown for a few months, 
if you gain a thread uh, on you know and you've lost a two or three threads of or you got two or three exposed threads i mean i i mean i guess you know us being surgeons we're patting ourselves on the back you know we we regenerated bone but really the clinical significance of that is minimal so why not just go in, smooth out those threads, make them real nice and smooth so you don't have any of those little nooks and crannies where bacteria like to fester and then let the patient go. You know, a lot of times you'll get that gingiva to kind of tuck in there and tighten up and the patient can get a few more years of function out of the, you know, several more years out of function out of that, out of that implant. And you tell them to just you know, patients are, are sometimes a little hesitant. They see a little bit of exposed right? or once they don't usually even see it. But once we tell them about it, they're like, oh, my God, I got to be careful. I shouldn't touch that. No, go to town. The cleaner you can keep it, the better off it's going to be. And then monitoring them, making sure there's no continued progression of the bone loss. But usually, best case scenario, you know, what you'll see is you'll see that bone loss stop, that kind of cratering effect that you see around the implant stops. And you just tell them to treat it like a, a tooth set that's had osseous surgery around it, and and um, it's usually not a problem. And do you use a round burr, or how do you do your plasty? So I, I'll sometimes I'll just use a round burr to burr those threads away, and then I might use an ultrasonic tip to to really just smooth it out. You know, get it, and then you can use you can even use a polishing a diamond or something like that. You know, just like we you you know. We were taught back in uh, in dental school just to make it, you know, almost like a mirror finish, as close to a mirror finish as you can get, but just smooth. You know, you just want to get it smooth, get that whatever, if there's a coating on there, you want to get that off of there, get down to bare titanium. Okay. Do you use any type of acid etchant or any chemicals? If I'm doing a salvage and I'm I'm going to maintain those threads, then I do. I use antibiotic slurry. I don't use uh, citric acid. Okay. And then I just go in there, I scrub, I go to town. And again, I run a I run a Cavitron in there because I just want to decrease the bacterial bio burden in there. There's no reason to be gentle at that stage. You know, you, you the implant, at least that portion of the implant is compromised. So what, what are we tiptoeing around it with, you know, titanium curettes and plastic curettes for? You know, just, just get all that gunk out of there and then graft onto bare titanium if you can. Yeah, that makes sense. What level of bone loss or, you know, periimplantitis tips the scale for you and say, okay, we should remove this and graft and go again? At the VA and, and, you know, on the academic side, you know, we tend to be a little more heroic. So we might try even at 50% bone loss, we'll, we'll try to salvage the implant. You know, sometimes you can get patients to buy into it on the, uh, you know, the private patients too. And I tell them, what's the harm? Let, let's try it out try the salvage and can, you know, if I got an implant with 50% bone loss and I can regenerate another 25% and I can nurse that implant along for another five, seven years, you know, I, I, I go for it. It, you know, there's a lot of factors that, that play uh, a role in that. You know, if it's, if it's my implant and, you know, I placed it and it's two years later and something, it, it's just looking it's looking rough. Then I'll take it out. I'll, I'll regraft. I'll start from scratch. I'll tell the patient, Hey, you know, um, let's go back to the drawing board. Let's try it out. Uh, maybe a different, different shape implant, different style, different, you know, you got to change something up. You don't want to just, okay, let me back this, you know, X, Y, Z implant out and 
go right back in and just use a new one of that same XYZ implant. You want to change something up. You know, if I got a 88 year old patient who's got, you know, three or four implants that are right next to one another with 40, 50% bone loss, I'm going to try and nurse those along. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to back those out and try find them out and do a big ridge hog and, and, you know, try to get a couple more implants in there. You know, if I have a 35 year old patient, you know, same scenario or 50% bone loss, I'll be hard pressed to to nurse that implant along for 40 or 50 years. So I'm going to, I'm going to probably back it out and, and start from scratch. And I'm sure you're also thinking about some of the other causes that could be there that are causing bone loss and perimplantitis, hygiene, occlusion. I'm sure you have to kind of attack it from all angles to make sure you're solving the problem. That's the key part, you know, is, is, is good collaboration with your restorative colleague because it's not, it's not usually, uh, you know, that, that implant that, you know, you, you, uh, you put the healing about on it, it looks rock solid. It's got bone clear up to the, you know, over the implant and, and, uh, and then you, you know, you release the patient to the restorative doc and then, you know, we we're all guilty of it. You'll, you'll, you know, the restorative doc will say, Hey, Hey, you know, do you think you can, you know, try to put in a bigger implant so I can get like an oversized tooth off of off of this one implant because the patient doesn't want to. They really need two. They really need two implants, but they don't want to pay for two implants. So I'm going to try and get a molar and a half on this guy. I think we're all guilty of it, and you know, we, we want to keep our referrals happy. And you do it. You tell them, okay, you know, let me get a wide platform implant in there, and inevitably it's at number nineteen. Let's say you're trying to get them a first molar, a first molar and a half, and it's opposing two natural teeth, and it's just getting beat up. You know, that implant's just getting pounded away at, and you'll see that slow progressive bone loss that's going. And then, you know, that's where you tell your restorative doc, hey, listen, you know, this implant, we're going to lose this implant unless you go in there. You've, you know, you, I mean, it's seclusion one hundred and one. You know, we know that those those implants, you know, they don't really tolerate lateral force as well that's still well established and you talk to the, the prosthodontic guys you know they're they're kind of they're particular about that stuff they're trying to make narrow occlusal tables splint as much as many implants as they can together all kinds of stuff there has to be a balance there with with the with an understanding with the patient you know with that you know maybe there are patients that you can get away with that you know the the tooth and a half you know the frail the frail little old, you know, osteoporotic, you know, a grandma that you can get away with as, as, or, you know, you get a, you know, a 38 year old six to 280 pound guy, you're not going to be able to get away with that. Cause he's going to beat that implant up pretty, pretty good. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's great advice. I think probably there's a lot of surgeons who, you know, that's not even on the radar is doing some type of implantoplasty or things to make it less likely to have a biofilm or, you know, collect bacteria. You know, I mean, there's that group, they might not do anything. They just say, you know what, we're going to tell a patient to improve their hygiene, keep an eye on it. The bone loss continues. Well, you know, as long as it's not affecting the adjacent teeth, we'll just hang on to it as long as we can. And if it falls out, we'll go back in, graft and start from start from scratch but you know if you already had that situation if you're just going to let it be you know leave it be why not 
why not try something, why not try and change something up to, to make it a little more cleansable and, and, you know, the definition of insanity, as we all know, is, you know, doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. So if the patient hasn't been doing it, they haven't progressed bone loss, they're probably not going to change their habits, you know. They're not going to all of a sudden uh, find religion and start, you know, brushing and water picking and spending 25 minutes, you know, cleaning around this implant. So I guess it behooves us to be the ones that kind of change things up. Yep. And you working at the VA, you see all sorts of patients, I'm sure, and different types of implants and histories and different things. What's one of the most difficult cases or complications you've had to deal with? Well, so the implants was, uh, you know, I've taken out a few transmandibular implants, and those are a nightmare. They were done probably 30 years ago-ish. You know, that was that was a thing back then, you know, per, percutaneous, you know, if we, for some of the real young guys, they probably have no clue what it is, but that's where you went, uh, through the, the neck essentially prepped from the below the mandible, then put this implant in that looked like something out of an erector set. And then it was bolted in this, this freaking thing was bolted in. And then you put uh, a prosthesis over the top of like a, like an overdenture and I mean, they, when they were in there and they worked, they were rock solid. I mean, some of these things, I mean, it, it looked like something out of like one of those Saw movies like that you'd use to like <laughs> torture somebody, you know, like what is, this pins coming out everywhere, screws, nuts. and the, But then the issue would be is when one of these things, when you'd have a, a breakdown of the components, well, one, they discontinued the, you know, the company went out of business, they discontinued it, they don't make anything to support it anymore. So then when you got to take this thing out, it's infected, it's pussing out, it's broken, but it's also partially or significantly osteointegrated. And you got to go through the friggin' neck to get it out, you know, so you're making this big old, I had a guy that he was pussing out in like six different spots, coinciding with each one of the pins that went through his mandible. Wow. So then, you know, he had fistulas everywhere. So then we went, we opened it up big, you know, you know, fortunately, uh, you know, Grant, you know, we were, we, we had a significant amount of, uh, you know, had neck training. So, you know, pretty comfortable going through the neck. So no big deal. We go through the neck, take it out, cutting things out. You know, the mandibles looks like Swiss cheese, you know, we're grafting stuff. I'm thinking, okay, we're going to have to, you know, luckily I, we didn't have to, we didn't have a pathologic fracture. And then after we cut out the whole fistula, we had to kind of we almost had to advance a flap, flap. We had we gave the guy like a, a neck. He had the he was like a seventy eight year old dude, but he had like the jawline and the neck of like a twenty two year old. I mean, he looked <laughs> he looked he looked good. You know, when we were done, I told him we'd put a couple of more kind of contemporary implants in there for an overdenture. But he was done with implants. The second I mentioned implants again, he was like, "No way!" <laughs> He's like, oh, "Yeah, I, you, know, you guys told me this was the cutting edge thirty years ago, and now I'm here with a you know with a, with a zipper on my neck, and uh, you know I don't want to." I don't want to it'd just make me a denture and I'm out of here. So we never saw him again. So that would, I, I would say the implant wise, those are the, those are the toughest, you know, those transmandibular, those old, I haven't had to fortunately deal with a subperiosteal implant. I've heard those are a real nightmare. Those are my, sometimes even worse than a transmandibular implant. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, I haven't uh, come across one of those. 
The biggest mess of a case that I had to deal with, this is, uh, I think, a few years after you left, uh, Grant, was I, I had a guy with necrotizing fasciitis, your typical, uh, you know, poorly controlled diabetic, alcoholic, you know, you name it. He had, a, you know, 12 different things that were going to kill him, but it turned out to be a, you know, tooth number 28 that he three times he came to clinic with kind of localized vestibular abscesses. We drained it. He refused. He'd absolutely just adamant about not losing this tooth. I mean, his fixation with this tooth was just uh, it's unreasonable. And then one day he came in to the emergency department, you know, in the middle of the night with just fulminant necrotizing fasciitis. Just So we went in and we debrided clear down onto his chest wall, lost all the skin down on, past the clavicle, all on the, uh, the you know, it was the, you know, number 28, so all on the right neck. It crept over to the uh, contralateral side, parotid gone, thyroid gone. You know, I went in, that's when we, uh, you know, I took down most of it myself. But then once we started dancing around the great vessels, I, I called in, you know, one of our head and neck guys and we tag teamed it. And then uh, it was clear up to the skull base. That was oh, the unique wow. thing. You know, it didn't only descend. It didn't get down into his chest. It didn't turn into descending mediastinitis, amazingly, but that, I think it's because we were pretty aggressive. But it chased clear up to the skull base. So we chased it up to the skull base. And then actually, he had a strip of of a carotid up at the, you know, up at the skull base that was exposed. You could put your finger up, you know, medial to the mandible, run it clear up, and you could feel the carotid pulsing way up high. When I saw that was the case, you know, we were... We needed, uh, you know, neurosurgery to be on board in case he blew his carotid out way up high, and so at that point I transferred him out. Of course, it was that was a <laughs> that was a nightmare transferring out a patient that bit. You know, I mean, nobody wanted to take this guy. They were, I mean, I think it was just a fluke that he did get transferred out. So then we got him transferred over to over to the university, and I think, you know, I'm not. I mean, we we kept him alive for seven, eight days at the VA, and then I think when they just saw the, I mean, he had he had almost what you'd classify as a unsurvivable wound. I mean, it's a huge, huge defect down onto his chest wall. I mean, you would have needed five different flaps to reconstruct this. So then, um, by that time, you know, his family had flown in, and I mean, he had little to no family support as it is, and. They talked about how his liver was so bad that, you know, if he survived this, he would die of liver failure probably in a in six to eight months. And at that they, at that stage, they, uh, you know, they kind of called it. They de- declared him DNR, DNI, and then they took, you know, they, uh, they declined any further surgical intervention. We were taking him to the OR twice a day, washing him out, the whole deal. And then wow. the second that uh, they said no more, I mean, he lasted another another day and a half, and then he he passed away. So that was kind of the biggest nightmare case, I guess you could say, you know, just, and, and that was a tooth. That was a, that was a, a donogenic infection. That was so that it's real. It happens, you know, mo- hopefully most of you guys, most of the guys on the private side won't see, you know, I, I think somebody was telling me, I asked one of the residents to write it up, but you know, how residents can be like, yeah, sure. Doctor was saying, oh yeah, I'm gonna start working on that. And then it <laughs> never, you know, it never right. comes to fruition. You know, that was four years ago or something like that. Now, you know, most guys will go their entire career, 30 year career without seeing a case of necrotizing fasciitis. I've, yeah. it's my, you know, I think it mostly has to do with the population. You know, you remember the population at 
uh, the Chicago, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, typical inner city hospital and with a bunch of, you know, sick, sick guys. So I've had three in my career so far, hopefully no more. The other guy was a spider bite. That was an interesting one. Spider bite on the, on the cheek, a brown recluse spider. And then he developed necrotizing fasciitis on his cheek. And we took down, you know, probably, uh, maybe four or five centimeter area skin. And, uh, that healed amazingly well. Secondarily, he didn't want a, a flap or any type of revision. And then the other guy was a guy that you might remember. He was a guy that actually started out at the university. We published that paper. He developed descending mediastinitis and the CT surgery guys had to, had to do a thoracotomy on him, the whole deal. And that was a guy that we thought we were going to lose, but he pulled through. He was a veteran too. The two worst were, were from teeth. The one guy that we thought we were going to lose and the one guy that, did, you know, we did end up, you know, that did end up dying. So wow. from teeth, you know, they say 85% of them are from, from a donogenic origin. So, so, you know, that's where our, our, you know, we, we do, you know, it's not often, um, you know, one of, uh, you remember Ryan Shepard, he, he said, he, he had a great quote. He said, you know, people don't always need us, but when, uh, when they need us, they need us bad. And, and that's, you know, whereas, you know, even as private practice guys, you know, we might say, ah, that we're never going to see that kind of stuff, or we're never going to, you know, have to go to the, oh, or we're not going to, we're never going to be saving somebody's life. Leave that to the guys in academics, you know, we'll, but, you know, as simple as getting to that tooth, that bad tooth, getting it out, draining that vestibular before it turns into a deep fascial space infection. That's a huge service that we can do for our communities. Yeah, that's incredible. I uh, appreciate you sharing those stories. I know you have also taught me a lot about the routine extraction of teeth, implants, bone grafts, all that stuff. In regards to just the bread and butter third molar extractions, has there been anything that you've changed the last couple of years? From a surgical perspective, you know, operative pr- perspective, not much. You know, I was always a guy that used a pretty big flap and just a real clean flap versus trying to work some guys use that little triangular mid flap i think they call it you know whatever they and you know what i realized is by using a little bit bigger flap and using a single stitch right distal to the that second molar and kind of almost sloppily just letting you know closing things up you know i i rarely i'm gonna knock on wood here on this chair i'm sitting in you know I don't get much, many of the, you know, these kids coming back with subperiosteal. And I, I, you know, I heard from guys like, I, you know, one out of every 15, 20 sets of wisdom tooth I do, I get a subperiosteal or something like that. And I can't, I don't even recall the last time I had somebody come back with a subperiosteal abscess, you know, or, or a dry socket by, you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing by the, just letting kind of leaving a little bit open and just letting, you know, you know, the patients swell less, you know, you, you, you know, you guys might, you know, I don't know if there's those guys, you that do a lot of coronectomies. I do a fair share of coronectomies too, you know, and those are the cases where I do, I, I close up the incision, you know, watertight. I use Vicryl and I stitch it up and, and make sure nothing gets in there on top of those root stumps. And inevitably the patient, you know, especially if I'm doing a coronectomy on one side and, and taking the tooth out on the other side, inevitably that coronectomy side, they're, 
they're hurting more, they're more swollen on that side. And it's just because that all that edema, that edematous, you know, kind of, you know, funkification that's going on in that extraction site doesn't have anywhere to go. And it just settles right in there and they swell, you know, and they're, they're, they're hurting, they're bruising. So if you let it kind of ooze out through that kind of sloppy, you know, kind of closed incision, I notice they get a lot less swelling, a lot less pain, a lot less discomfort, a lot less chances of bruising. You know, if you close them up watertight, where's all that kind of seepage going to go? It's going to go into that area right there, and they're just going to, you know, maybe you make yourself feel a little better. You know, I, I'll i have to feel the call here and there. Oh, doctor was saying the flap, I can feel the flap, you know, I can feel the flapping or the stitches, your stitch popped out after two or three days. That's all right. Are you having yep. pain? Are you this? Are you that? Nope, I'm not having any of that. I just want to know if that was okay. Yep, it's okay. Don't worry about it. You know, I'd much rather have that call than, you know, I'm still, you know, it's a week later. Is it supposed to be this sore? I'm bruised down to my collarbone or whatever, you know. That's that's my main thing. You know, I, I like I said, you know, the other thing is I, I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of coronectomies, you know. I do a fair share of them. I don't know. Some guys, I mean... They've never done a coronectomy in their in their careers. You know, they just they don't do them. You know, uh, it's a pain in the butt. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I it takes I can take a tooth out a lot quicker than doing a nice clean coronectomy. But you know, if, if there's a good good indication to do one, I uh, I'll do it. You know. I mean, the make, big concern with a coronectomy is infection. It's tooth causing pain how often do you see some of those complications yeah i mean again knock on wood i i haven't had anybody come back acutely you know infected or or having pain i i try to be real real clean and real swift about the way i do my coronectomies uh, i'm not in there you know actually i i reviewed a, a paper as public it was published in an international journal not art not our journal, not Choms, but, um, and it talked about doing a coronectomy, you know, you would think, oh, uh, maybe I'll do a coron, I'll do my coronectomies with a piezo. And what they found was actually you had more complications doing them with a piezo because if, if there's any of you guys out there that use a piezo, you know, it takes a lot longer to cut with a piezo. You're in there, especially when you're cutting tooth you're just in there forever and what they found is you're just overheating bone you're overheating tooth you're overheating pulp whereas if you go in there and maybe it's not as glamorous you know using just your tried and true 702 you know i'm a 702 guy and just lop that crown off nice and clean and and get in you know get in and not a dodge real quick because you're generating less heat those cases have less less complications what I have seen is is root migration. Over the course of a few years, I have seen those roots migrate, and when they migrate, they migrate away from the nerve. So then I'll go back in. Patients will complain, I, I, you know, and they migrate almost right clear up to the surface. You know, a, a little bit of local, and you flip them out, and that's it. You know, sometimes it takes two, three years. For, you know, half a decade, but yeah. I, I have seen them migrate. Very nice, and I assume you use a round burr and smooth it off, and. Yeah, I mean, if I have any enamel left, I go in there and I treat. But I really try to just, I really try to get my my straight burr and just lop that, just go in there, lop that crown off, 
you know, see if I can make sure I can see that, visualize that lingual plate. I don't do a lingual flap, but I, you know, kind of get a, I, you know, I think I can get a pretty, I can judge pretty well. And then I'll, uh, and I'll just tease that, that crown right off. You know, usually I'm just picking it out with my cotton pliers or whatever. And then I take a good look around. I make sure that, that, you know, what you want to see is those root stumps just flush. You don't want to see a lot of space. You don't, and, and I don't mess around, uh, you know, like I had an instructor in, in dental school used to, you know, say, you don't, you don't romance it to death. You know, just I irrigate the bejesus out of it. I've grafted over the root stumps and I haven't grafted over the root stumps. I haven't noticed benefit of doing one over the other. You know, when I do a cornectomy on maybe a little bit older patient and that tooth's abutted up against a, a second molar and maybe I'm trying to reduce the chances of a perio defect, not, not that the studies uh, particularly support it, but, you know, I'm I figure, you know, let's, let me try it. You know, maybe if I get a little bit of root coverage or whatever, that's good enough. Um, I'll graft, but like I said, I've done it both ways and, and it works just fine. You know, stitch it up watertight, tell the patients, Hey, if you have problems, pain, throbbing, something, you know, you let us know and, and make sure that their GP is, you know, shooting a film back there, you know, trying to get back there every couple of years to see if those roots are migrating. Do you do anything special with antibiotic treatments or regimens? No, no. I mean, I, I, nothing different than I do for my, for my wisdom teeth. No. The only okay. difference is I, I close it up with Vicryl, something slow, slow resorbing until I, you know, I get good primary closure. Whereas with my wisdom teeth, you know, I'll throw in a, I'm, I don't even use chromic gut. I just use plain gut and like I said, a loose uh, stitch, right? Distal to the, you know, one stitch for the, the lower thirds nothing for the top i don't i don't use any sutures for my upper wisdom teeth and that and nice. that's, that's worked pretty well for me and with your wife being an anesthesiologist i have to ask you what your anesthetic technique and if it's changed at all over the last couple of years yeah so i use and it is a it is a, a technique that i i picked up from her at i guess our kind of our slang term for it is ketofall, but, uh, you know, it's where, you know, some guys say, well, ketofall, I mean, I, I use ketamine and propofol. I use, you know, I use both those drugs, but I, I cut my ketamine with my propofol. So the way I do it is I'll, I'll drop, you know, let's say 80 milligrams of propofol on a 10 cc stick, you know, and then I'll, I'll leave two cc's for, you know, if I'm doing 10 milligrams per cc of ketamine, I'll put 20 milligrams of ketamine and there are two cc's so roughly it breaks down to you know i have two milligrams of ketamine per cc to eight milligrams of propofol i mean obviously the, it's a little more complex than that but um and that that works great that's what i use as kind of i guess you could say my kind of little aliquots that i'm giving the patients little bumps that i'm giving them while i'm riding through the case you know uh, and yeah what I've noticed is it smooths out those kind of peaks and valleys you get with just using straight propofol when you're just, you know, they'll, they'll get real apneic and then suddenly they're, you know, they're wide awake and they're, uh, they're a little, you know, you're getting a little thrashing. Yeah, yeah. thrashing. And then, so it really smooths that out. And, um, you know, I don't get any of that nausea vomiting that, uh, you know, I guess ketamine is notorious for. I, I mean, rare if ever do I have to, yeah. because of the kind of anti-emetic, effects of uh you know the propofol and 
So that's the main thing. I started using more Toradol. I don't know if guys use that. I use, I use, I give every set of wisdom teeth 30 milligrams of Toradol nice. as opposed to, uh, you know, it cuts down on the amount of narcotic I have to give. If I, I'm given 25 mics of fentanyl, if that, you know, for my wisdom teeth, but that Toradol works real well. It's got the, uh, you know, obviously making sure that's, you know, if, if it's our young, healthy kids, you know, they can to- tolerate 30 milligrams of Toradol, you know, old patient with you know crappy kidneys then maybe i'm skipping it you're still using versed yeah i use verse uh, i mean versed that's kind of my uh you know i start off by giving every patient two milligrams of versed 10 milligrams of, of ketamine maybe like i said 25 mics of fentanyl and then i bump them with two cc's so roughly 16 milligrams of, of propofol and and another four milligrams of ketamine. So 14 milligrams of ketamine total. I give them that Toradol and, and, and that, you know, the the Decadron right, right off the bat. And a lot of cases, you know, a straightforward set of wisdom teeth, that's all I'm giving them. I'm, I'm flying through the case with just that, you know, and if I need to go back, you know, yeah, maybe I'm giving a touch and maybe I'll give them one more of Versed at the end to make sure that, you know, they don't remember you you get that Hey, Billy, do you remember anything? Uh, no, no, you know. But I'm also of the of of the school of thought that, you know, I I do I do keep them on the, you know, as I've been doing this longer, I you know, I, I do keep them on the lighter side. If they're yeah, uh, they're opening their eyes a little bit, they're like, uh, you know, afterwards they can say, "I remember you." Uh, uh, do you remember me? you know chopping part of your jawbone away and cut uh, okay good so you remember the stuff that you know the uh, okay you know 10 minutes later they don't even remember that you know you get that typical are we done yet are we done yet you know like uh, yeah you've been they've been done 45 minutes you had your coffee you know you went and did a couple of consults you know whatever um before they remember what's going on so so you know i mean as opposed to, you know, they're getting apneic, you're getting them way too deep, then you're giving them a jaw thrust. You know, that is, it slows you down. You know? Why why have to deal with that along with the stress of just, you know, having somebody that's not breathing, that's apneic, that you're having to bag or, you know, God forbid, uh, something worse than that, you know. Why, why deal with that? For sure. And I know in the past we've had discussions about oral surgeons and their anesthesia practice and preserving it and maintaining rights yeah that's that's our next big battle you know i i'm pretty involved with uh, with the american association of oral maxillofacial surgeons and and i'm the the va the va delegate to amos and you know in our house of delegates meeting just a, a few weeks ago you know at the at the annual meeting um that was that that is the main you know obviously covid is kind of the overshadowing main issue with all of healthcare but for us particularly as a specialty it's it's our ability to deliver uh, anesthesia the way that we have been doing for you know for decades and it's mostly directed at, not at us as the uh, is the docs because you know our anesthet- our anesthesia colleagues know we're well trained to deliver the type of anesthetic outpatient, you know, um, anesthetics that we, we deliver, but, um, they're being very critical of our, of our staff, of our support staff pointing to the fact that, 
you know, some of them, and you know, you can't, I mean, for the most part, they're, they're right. You know, some of them are, are high school graduates who, uh, you know, have a certificate in dental assisting, but that's, you know, that's dumbing it down quite a bit. You know, a lot of these teams, we've spent time working with them. They've gotten additional dance certification. They've taken on additional classes and then we know, you know, they're, they're, they're not your typical dental assistant, you know, they, and they're as good as, as you train them to be right. You know, I mean, it's, you were a resident, you know, uh, Grant, we were all residents. We know that you're only as good as what your mentors and, 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 and your faculty, you know, um, uh, teach you to be. And, and then sometimes, you know, if we, if you teach them to be sharp and, and you teach them to be diligent and, 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 you know, I'm, my staff, like, I mean, I, you know me, Grant. I'm I'm a pretty easygoing guy. I like to joke around, and but when it comes time to put somebody to sleep, you know, I'm as serious as a heart attack because that's it. I don't. I'm, there's no joking. There's everybody's on point. I'm I'm you know I'm tough on my my team. I'm tough on my girls. I, I said there's there's none of this. You know, when I ask for something or when I tell you, like you know, you can you know I'll. I'll apologize later if I'm, uh, if I'm a little curt, you know, or a little, uh, cross, but, uh, at the time, you know, I don't need any lip. I don't need any sass. I don't need, you know, this is somebody's, is somebody's child, somebody's pride and joy. And I take that very seriously. You know, we should never be cavalier about that because it, it really is. It's, it's probably the scariest thing. You know, we were just talking about a necrotizing fasciitis case. So the, uh, that was a sick, older gentleman with multiple his fate you know the writing was on the wall for that guy before he came in through the doors of the emergency department but you get a healthy 17 year old kid like i said somebody's pride and joy that that's just coming in for a set of wisdom teeth and if you're being because you're being sloppy you're you know you're not calculating things you're missing a unusual rhythm on your EKG or your staff's joking and clowning around and missing that or something like that, or, you know, that's inexcusable. And, and for the most part, I think we, we don't, we don't, you don't hear that happening from the millions and millions of anesthetics that we deliver every year. I mean, you don't hear those stories, uh, you know, coming from every corner of the country because it doesn't happen that often. The sad part is that when it does, it's not oral and maxillofacial surgeon has complication. Patient has, you know, uh, maybe it's dentist kills, you know, patient kills high school football star, you know, you know, taking out tooth. It's embellished. It's inflamed. You know, of course the parents are heartbroken. You know, they, they don't have any other recourse, you know, they have lawsuits and those types of things. Yes, of course. But you know, they, they want to make sure it doesn't happen to somebody else's child. So then they go, they, you know, they go to their congressmen, they go to their senators and they say, look at this, this is what they're doing. Did you know that these dentists are given anesthetics? You know, what, what, what you go in and the anesthesiologist give you in the hospital, they're giving that to you in a dental chair. Did you know that? Oh, these senators, like, like they know what they're, you know, what they're looking at or what, you know, what's going on there. Oh my God. I, I didn't know that was happening. How dare they, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they act like they know what's freaking going on. And, you know, <laughs> you know, a couple of weeks earlier, they probably had their kid down, you know, they, their kid was getting their wisdom teeth out of having the, but 
because you know when they took their kid to have their wisdom teeth out, they didn't take their kid to the dentist who put them in. They took their they took their kid to an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and an appropriately certified facility and with appropriately certified staff. So you know if if you if you explain it to them that way, then the story becomes this was an unfortunate incident that happened. We know those things happen in in medical centers across the country all the time, you yeah. know. So how is this any different? You know, it was that un, you know, you know, I do a fair amount of medical legal uh, uh, consulting and reviews, and, and there's some cases where it's just like, what was the what was the individual thinking? But then there's cases where you're just like, you know, the 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 17 year old kid had first anesthetic exposure went into some weird dysrhythmia that even a, you know, a trained, you know, seasoned cardiologist might've had a different difficult time bringing them out of, you know, we, you hear stories about kids on a basketball court, healthy kid, athlete dropping dead right on a basketball court. You know, you, you deliver enough anesthetics that's going to happen, you know, at some point. The thing that we need to, as a, as a profession, fight for and make very clear is is that there's going to be outliers like that, but, you know, you can't condemn the entire profession to uh, taking away uh, something that is, is really is a service to the community. You know, now imagine they say, okay, you know what? We're not going to let oral and maxillofacial surgeons deliver their own anesthetic and do the surgery simultaneously. You know, you, you guys are, you know, and they always they always pitch it from a very, you know, you guys are doing complex surgery. You know, you're, you're surgeons. You should just be focusing on that. They try to make it seem like they're looking out for you, us. You know, you should be just focusing on the surgery. This is a complex surgery you're doing. You know, how can you be doing a complex anesthetic and complex surgery, you know? So that should be, you know, uh, well, okay, that's fine. You know what? we're going to be fine. You know what we're all going to do is we're just going to double the cost of taking out a wisdom tooth. And we're going to say, we've got to take it to the hospital. And who's going to, who's going to be the one that has to unfortunately pay with their time, their inconvenience, their money. It's going to be the patients, you know? And, and I'm telling you those complications that you see happening, that one in a, I I can't remember how many hundred of thousand it is. It's still going to happen. In a hospital exactly. with a with a board certified anesthesiologist delivering the anesthetic, it's just it just happens, you know. And then you're going to say, "Well, why did we change the model? Now this this model is ten times as costly." And I mean, th- these guys there's only there's only eight or nine thousand of these guys in the country already, and now we make it and we just made it even tougher to get access to them. And and then what you're going to see is you're going to see a. Uh, the, you know, the curve of patients going into the emergency departments with, you know, like that guy that I was talking about with severe adonogenic infections are going to go up because patients are going to say, you know what, I can't get into an oral and maxillofacial surgeon. They're booked out, you know, they're booked out six, eight months. So I've been walking around with this infected tooth trying to get it out and they, they're going to end up in the emergency room with a life-threatening infection. So what can... The private practice guy who's not associated with an institution do to support the field and our rights. The biggest thing we can do is, you know, Amos, I know sometimes, uh, you know, 
you guys are busy. We understand that, you know, those, uh, those of us on the academic side, we know that you guys are busy. You're cranking away. You're representing the specialty well, and, uh, you know, taking surveys and, and doing research and, uh, you know, that's, that takes time. And, and so we try to streamline it for you. We try to make it easy, but you know, it is going to require somewhat of a sacrifice. It's going to require a little bit of a sacrifice of time on, on the private docs part. It's going to, you know, time is money. So yeah, is it going to require some money? It's going to require some money, but that is data that we desperately need to prove that we as a profession are safe. We deliver safe anesthetics. We practice safely because that that d- data carries power. And it's it's a lot of data. It's a lot of you know. We want to. We don't want to give them a few little you know here's and there's. We want to inundate them with da- data. Just look at you know. I mean, I know some of you guys. There's guys out there that are doing thousands of anesthetics. You know, a year. And multiply that time over the specialty. That's a lot of data. And if we can go and say, oh, you know, because the anesthesia, you know, the, the, and we got everybody coming after us, you know, it's the, it's the anesthesia guys, it's the dental, and I mean, our own, our own people are stabbing us in the back, the dental anesthesia guys, the pediatric dentists, you know, they're, and um, they're coming up with these onesies and twosies. Oh, look at this guy that, you know, over here and over there. And so we got to come at them with, you know, hundreds of thousands of cases saying, look at all these and look at the cost effectiveness. Look at how we're providing access to care to this rural environment. You got you guys talk about how nobody or this rural population, you know, how nobody is willing to go to these areas. To I mean, you're only going to make it more difficult for those folks to get access to care um, if yeah. you if you tie our hands more. So that's what really you know when we when we reach out when the the academic guys reach out when you know the American Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgeons reaches out and says. Here's this survey. It's just, you know, and, and please provide us with your data. It's going to be anonymous. It's going to be, you know, your name's not going to be tied to it, you know. And and we want it to be accurate data. You know, we want it to be a reflection of, okay, all the good cases. Did you have a case where, okay, somebody got apneic, somebody had a, you know, untoward reaction to the anesthetic. You did have to, as a, out of abundance of uh, caution, you did have to send them to the hospital. You had them spend a night because, we want to we want to see that too. We want to know that our practitioners can recognize something that's that's not right, can seek consultation and assistance from our, our colleagues on the on the medical side, the whether it's the anesthesia side, internal medicine side, whatever, and say, hey, I noticed this weird rhythm, you know, on this kid. I'm not comfortable just sending them home. Can I get them over to you guys and you just check it out and maybe you know slap them, put them on telly overnight and make sure everything's okay. You know, uh, the patient's going to be, hey, he feels okay. Uh, Jimmy, how do you feel? You feel all right? I feel all right. No, but, you know, maybe they won't take the kid to the hospital. But, you know, that shows that we we are doing our part. You know, we're, we're, yeah. rec- we're recognizing it. We're, we're not, it's not over our heads. So. Exactly. And then my last questions for you are in relation to the TMJ, because I know that unlike a lot of surgeons, you kind of have built some degree of your specialty around treating the TMJ. But uh, what, you know, are some of the things that you've done recently and how do you treat some of those difficult TMJ issues? Yeah, you know, I, I, I do, um, you probably recall, Grant, you probably did a few with me when you were over at the VA. You know, I do arthroscopic temporal mandibular joint surgery and I reserve that for patients that are refractory to 
all the non-interventional stuff, you know, we've tried uh, splint therapy. I work with their general dentistry team. We do physical therapy before that. We do acupuncture and, and uh, you know, and acupressure and all the other stuff that you can think of before we go to anything interventional, you know. I'll start even with the botulinum. You know, I, I've been doing a fair amount of that. You know, these patients that have spasticity and even the patients that that have, you know, focal pain. And I say, you know what, let's let's try it out because maybe it's happening because you have muscular overloading of the joint. That's leading to pain in the, in the joint, you know, exacerbating that internal derangement, that pain that you're having from your internal derangement. And, and amazingly, you know, I, when I started off doing it 10, you know, over 10 years ago, I was kind of, you know, I was skeptical. And I said, ah, you know, what? it's Botox, right? You know, I, like I tell my patients, I said, worst case scenario, you know, in four months, six months, it wears off and you're back to your baseline. You know, you can't really, I mean, you can't fight the reality of the medication. It's it's temporary. And like I said, I became a believer when, you know, these guys would have, you know, I stopped telling them the time frame. The, the effects are temporary, whether they're good or bad. And we'd, sh- you know, we'd shoot them up with Botox and the masseters, temporalis. And, um, you know, they say, doc, I feel great. I haven't felt, you know, we had some guys that had refractory pain, you know, 20 years, they'd been dealing 30 years. And all of a sudden they're like, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it, it was a nine out of 10 every day. And now it's a two out of 10, a one out of 10. And I said, okay, well, let's see how long we can keep it going. And without fail, four, five, six months, their pain's coming back. So that tells you there's something there's something about that medication that's that's alleviating that pain. If we know that it lasts four, five, six months, if we're if we're lucky, and they're coming back like clockwork, and you know, then at that stage, you know, then they're believers. You know, they're they're on a schedule. You know, then then you've yeah. got a regular, and you know, now we got now I've probably got 50, 50, 60 patients that are cycling through at any given time, and you know, the ones that I started doing early on 10 years ago, what I've noticed is you do eventually get them to a new equilibrium where uh, they just kind of fell off the radar and uh, they fell off the radar because probably finally broke that pain cycle up that they've been dealing with. And, and we've weakened those muscles now enough to the point where, you know, hopefully their pain is, 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 is better, you know, it's tolerable yeah. to the point where they don't, they're not beating the door down to get the, Botox. I mean, there's something to it. If somebody's willing to come in to get stuck with a needle in their face, you know, 15, 20 times, uh, there's, there's obviously something to it. So, and, and obviously I'm not just doing this empirically, you know, the research, research supports its benefits for, especially for myofascial pain. And, you know, those real complex patients, you know, I, I'll, I'll couple that with, you know, we get them from a 10 out of 10 to a five out of 10 with Botox. And then, uh, you know, they have an, a component of internal derangement. So we'll go in there and we'll flush the joint out, do, you know, with arthroscopic uh, assistance and, and we can get them, we can get them to a pretty good place. That's awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. This has been some really great information. And I think a lot of people can benefit from some of the stuff we discussed. And I appreciate you fighting the good fight with the TMJ when everyone else is trying to turf it. No problem, man. That's that's what we're here for. There's got to be some, uh, like you know, some of us 
nut jobs out there, the cancer, you know, I look at the cancer guys kind of cross-eyed and I'm sure they look at me kind of cross-eyed, you know, like, <laughs> like <laughs> what are you doing these 18, 20 hour cases for? And, and you know, the, the funny thing is like, you know, their cases take 18 or 20 hours, but if you've ever done a TMJ consult on somebody that's had, you know, uh, chronic TMJ pain, you, you, those consults take 18 to 20 hours because they're sitting there, they got a, they got a stack of MRIs and, you know, pain, and you're just, you know, you're telling yourself, you know, you're, you're still only charging them, you know, the, whatever you're after the copay and stuff like you're making a hundred, you're making 78 bucks, you know, for <laughs> sitting there for listening to two hours, but you know, sometimes that's all. Sometimes that's that's what they need. They want. That's what they need. They need just need. You know, your your part. Your part psychiatrist, right? Part psychologist. So exactly. Yeah, yeah. Thanks again for having me, Grant. I mean, uh, I think this is great you, that you you put this together for the guys. You know, so we can kind of we're a tight. We're a small specialty to begin with, and and you know, it behooves us to to have each other's backs, to stay in touch, to collaborate. So yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's great. Hey, thanks so much. I, I mean, I really feel that there's a lot of surgeons who are commuting and driving and they're so busy. Look at a guy like me who has six kids and, you know, a lot of people just got so many balls in the air that we're juggling that it's hard to find time to sit down and read all the literature and kind of hash through all the things that's going on. So a lot of the learning comes from this, these discussions you have with your colleagues. And this is so great to talk to you and some of these other guys and get some of their information. Cool. Well, have a good night. Say hi to your family for me. Same to you, Grant. Okay. Keep, keep plugging away. Like I said, you know, I can imagine with six kids and, you know, <laughs> you're fighting your own good fight. So you, you <laughs> exactly. stay, stay strong. All right. All right, and, man. Talk to you later. Yeah, have a good night, Grant. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery, Surgeons Talking Shop. If you are practicing oral surgery or in the oral surgery field and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or feel free to text me or call me at 720-775-5843. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed or any feedback on certain episodes that have already aired, I would love for you to call or email me. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you in the next episode.